Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath but fulfil to the Lord the oaths you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this, comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that?
Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thanks very much, Chris. And uh, do keep that um, open up in 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 front of you. Um, it's it's quite an epic passage, isn't it? Um, so so buckle in. Um, this morning you missed out all the fun of um, fire alarms going off and singing outside. Um, I, I don't think there's any more planned f- for this afternoon, but I guess if I'm droning on too long, somebody might go out there and <laughs> press it just for a break. Um, I want to start off with, with a question for you, and it's this. What is your attitude to the law? To, to the instructions that God has laid down in his word for how we're to live. What's your attitude? What's your approach to it? I'm going to give two um, fictional people I've just invented um, who, who represent a couple of different approaches to the law. Let, let's call the first one Anna. Um, any resemblance to, to real people that we know is purely coincidental. So Anna... Anna has just got a new boyfriend, and uh, things are going well. They're, they're both Christians, and she comes to you and asks, what are the rules for boyfriends, girlfriends, that kind of stuff? Um, h- how late should we be hanging out with each other? How much time should we be spending on our own? And, you know, the, the other stuff that boyfriend and girlfriends do, what's the kind of rules about those kind of things? How do you answer Anna as she comes to you with that question? It's, it's quite an awkward conversation, isn't it? Um, hashtag awkward. Um, Anna's asking this because as she thinks about her situation, what's most important to her and her approach to, to God's rules about this is this. What's the most that I can get away with? So as she thinks about what God wants, that's the thing. What's the most that I can get away with? She recognises the authority of God's word and, and how important it is, what he says and what he thinks. But her attitude to, to God's instructions is what's the most I can get away with? How far can I go before it's too far, if you like? Now, instead, she, she could have been asking, what does it look like f- for me and, and my boyfriend to actively pursue purity? in our situation she could have been thinking how can can i help myself and and my partner how can i help uh, us in, in our in our holiness and in, in our walk with jesus what are the things i could actively pursue that would in that in that uh, kind of sense it's a very different attitude and approach to to god's word and his instructions so that's anna Fictional Anna. <laughs> What's the most I can get away with? That's her approach to God's law. Now, how about Sam? Uh, as Sam sees it, God's instructions for life are like a straitjacket. They're rigid, authoritarian. They're a straitjacket. There's just, yeah, it's too much. For Sam, God is love. He's all about love. And love trumps the law, doesn't it? 
And actually, that's what we see in the culture all, all around us. Um, love loves what it loves. And so, you know, don't try and shackle it and put rules around it and, and all that kind of thing. That's what our culture says. And if you challenge that a little bit, then you're likely to get cancelled. So Sam doesn't want to get cancelled. And also, as he thinks about it a bit more, Sam says, as a Christian, I'm forgiven. Jesus died once for all, so I don't need to get too worried about keeping the law anymore because I'm saved by grace. Why, why do I need to get too worried about laws and, and that kind of thing? Jesus has, has cancelled it all. I've got my free pass into heaven. Great. Sorted. Done. So what would you say to fictional Anna and fictional Sam, I wonder? What would Jesus say to fictional Sam and Anna? There's two different ways of, of thinking about God's instructions for how we're to live in the world. Actually, both of those approaches do have some aspects of truth about them. Anna does recognise the authority of, of God's word. Sam is right that, that we are saved by God's grace. We don't earn our way into heaven. But both Sam and Anna, both of them, dislike the demands of, of God's law and his instructions. And, and they want to kind of loosen it a bit and, and make it easier for them to follow, water it down and make it a bit more palatable. That, that's what they, they want to do. So what does Jesus say about that? What does Jesus say about how we're to, to think about the law and God's word. And that's exactly the question we need to have in our minds as we, as we read through this section of the Sermon in the Mount. And before I go on any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, um, sometimes when we come to your word, it's, it's hard for us to understand and, and, and we need your help. Sometimes when we come to your word, it's hard for us to obey and we need your help. So we pray by your spirit, you would help us to both understand and help us to obey what you have for us today. We pray you would help us to see your heart, to see your son more clearly. So please help us in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we, we started to explore together, as, uh, as Adam was preaching to us, how Jesus relates to the law and, and how Christians should relate to the law as well. So have a look at verse 17, Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is saying that the whole of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, that's shorthand for the whole of the Old Testament. The whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus. It all finds its fulfillment in him. The law, the prophets, the sacrificial system, all of it points forward to a promised rescuer king who would be God himself, who's, who's coming. And Jesus said, that's me. So he's not come to abolish the law, to rip it up. He's not saying we don't need it anymore. 
So fictional friend Sam, take note. He's come to fulfill it. And in fact, as we saw last week, he stresses the permanence of the law. Heaven and earth will pass away before the law ever does, he says. And he says that that those who relax even the least of, of these commands and teaches others to do that too will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And he finished last week, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. That would have been a, a, a bombshell for all those listening in. If, if these guys, if their law keeping is not up to the mark, well then what hope is there for the rest of us? But Jesus says that they were not good enough. They were good, but they were not good enough. Jesus says their law keeping was insufficient. And as we see, as we go through our section this afternoon, there's a problem with their approach as it comes to to, to living by the law. So what we have before us in verses uh, 21 right through to, to verse 48 are six worked examples of the kind of righteous living that God demands from us. And we're going to have a whistle-stop tour through, through them this afternoon. We, we won't be able to get into all the nuts and bolts of um, all the things that, that, are, that are in here. But I hope that as we have a kind of bird's-eye view, go through it, um, we'll be able to see some really important things as we go through. Um, But before diving in, we need to see the pattern that's at work here. So in verse 21, verse 27, 31, 33, 38, 43, basically the starts of, of each of these sections, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, but I tell you. Starts each of these sections. Now, whenever Jesus normally quotes from the Old Testament in his teaching, he always says, it is written. When he's quoting from the Old Testament to back up what he's teaching and and what he's um, passing on. But here, he says, you have heard it said. Did you see the difference? He's not contradicting the Bible. He's not contradicting the Old Testament scripture himself but what he's going after and pushing back on is the interpretation and teaching and tradition of the pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law you have heard it said this is what these guys have have said to you in the past but i tell you i tell you it's quite a claim of authority that jesus makes here in his, his Sermon on the Mount. Um, and uh, what we'll see as we go through these, these various um, examples that Jesus picks out, what we'll see is that the Pharisees' approach is very similar to fictional Anna that we were thinking about at the beginning. The Pharisees' approach as they come to the law is what's the most I can get away with. That's as they come to God's law right at the heart. 
What's the most I can get away with? Watch out as we go through for the ways that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law either restrict God's commands or, or try to kind of open up the permissions of the law to, to basically make them less demanding, less difficult to, to, to keep. So as we go through, you'll see that in each case, Jesus is going to contrast the people's misunderstandings with the true direction that the law points, according to his authority, as, as the one who fulfills the law. So that's the kind of pattern we'll see as we come to each of these different things. And um, you guys have got a table in front of you where you can fill in as, as you're going through. Lucky you. Um, so first up, anger. Verse 21. You have heard it said to... Uh, To the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they wanted to restrict and limit the sixth commandment to just... The act of killing, of, of murder. If they limit it to just the, the act of, of murdering someone, shedding their blood, killing them, it's pretty easy to keep it. Have I killed anyone today? No. Great. Check. Next. But, but what Jesus says is he just opens it up much broader than the way they've just limited it to, the, to the, just the physical act of, of murdering somebody. What's in view for Jesus is much bigger. Our thoughts, our words, our feelings, the attitude of our hearts comes into play for Jesus. As he, as he looks at how this, this law points much deeper to anger and insults and not just the physical act of murdering someone. There's a bit of debate as to exactly what these two words that Jesus um, uses here exactly mean but probably raka uh, which which means empty-headed is more to do with intelligence so saying to someone you're stupid that's that's the kind of thing that's that's in view here and you fool is probably not so much to do with head as it is to do with heart and character so it's uh, calling someone a scoundrel Anybody use that word? It's just, yeah, I couldn't really. Anyway, so you stupid, you scoundrel. Um, but it's really striking, isn't it? Have a look at verse 22. I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. It's really striking, isn't it, what Jesus says. In Jesus' mind, anger, contempt, insults are equivalent to murder and are deserving of of punishment. In Jesus' mind, it's serious stuff. In fact, so serious, it needs urgent action to deal with it. And that's what the two examples that he sets out, verses 23 uh, to the end of that little section are about 
Jesus urges them to take urgent action, to to reconcile, to, to put things right. It takes priority over whatever ceremonial thing you might be doing at the temple. Stop that. Go and make it right. Make peace urgently. If your words, actions, thoughtlessness have offended or hurt someone else, don't delay. Take the initiative to make it right as soon as you can. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, anger is, is not just kind of explosive loss of temper. Maybe you're that kind of fiery person who's prone to that kind of thing. Anger can often present itself in, in, uh, as, as a feeling that just simmers away uh, within us. What Jesus says here, don't let it fester. Don't let it grow. Don't, don't feed it. Deal with it urgently. Be reconciled. So that's anger. Jesus then moves to talk about lust next, verses 27 to 30. So he moves from the sixth commandment to the seventh commandment. Verse 27, you have heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, adultery was, was kind of often talked of and seen in terms of theft rather than purity. So stealing someone's wife. And here again, as with anger, the rabbis would seek to restrict the command to the act itself, the act of adultery. And in doing that, they're actually ignoring the 10th commandment. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. It's more convenient for them to sort of gloss over that whole idea of coveting and and desiring somebody else's stuff, somebody else's wife. They would restrict in in their mind this this commandment just to the act of committing adultery. Much less demanding, much easier to keep. But again, what does Jesus do? Well, he blows it up, doesn't he? He widens it right out. He widens it again to a heart issue. To look lustfully at a woman is to commit adultery in your heart. He says, and just like murder, murder doesn't just come up from nowhere, but anger in our heart that is allowed to fester and grow and and take control can often, well, that's what leads to, to murder. So lust that is allowed to fester and grow and take control can eventually lead to adultery. Just as with anger, Jesus has practical, transformative action that we're to take. Verses 29 to 30. Look at just how radical this is that Jesus says. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus calls for radical treatment. 
to root out lust from our hearts. And it really is radical. He, want, he calls us to be ruthless in our dealing with it. Or is Jesus just using dramatic figures of speech? Is he calling us to literally do this? People have debated that over the centuries. Um, but even if you were to gouge out your eye, it's probably not going to stop you lusting. Because it's a heart issue. Well, whatever our, our, our take on that, we can't miss how radical Jesus calls us to be in dealing with lust. It's something we, we need to put to death, to starve of oxygen. Don't look, Jesus says. If our phone or computer or tablet or TV uh, are providing opportunities for us to, to look at things we shouldn't be looking at, that aren't helpful for us, we'll get rid of them. Uh, pornography is absolutely endemic in, in our society. It, it's, it's a massive issue. And actually, I think for, for us as Christians, it's a justice issue for us as well. It's exploitation of the worst kind. And yet our crazy woke me too world doesn't seem to have a problem with it at all which i just can't understand it's a huge problem at a society level it's a huge problem at an individual level too if you're getting sucked into to pornography it's it it, it trains you to objectify women or men it it trains you to think of sex just in terms of your own pleasure it and it causes huge damage to relationships don't look, Jesus says. Take drastic action. Uh, perhaps you might need to get some kind of um, accountability software. Um, you may have heard of uh, Covenant Eyes. There's, there's other uh, solutions out there like that. Covenant Eyes, for a few quid a month, you can install software on your phone and your tablet and your computer, and which just kind of keeps track of, of what you're looking at. It, blocks you accessing some things um, but it keeps track and uh, you set up an accountability partner who will get an email every now and then with with what you're looking at so you can be accountable with with them um, that's not going to solve the whole heart issue but it's a it's a good practical step to put in place if this is going to be if this is an issue for you but from an eternal perspective, what we see again and again as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is a decision for us. Are we going to live for this world or the next? Are we going to follow Jesus or are we going to follow the crowd? What are we going to decide? Don't look, Jesus says. Take drastic action. Well, moving on from anger and lust, he comes to divorce in verses 31 and 32. It has close connections with this section on adultery as well. And before we look at exactly what Jesus um, says, I, I, I want to, to say just how complex and profoundly personal the whole issue of divorce is. In my experience, there's almost no unhappiness so poignant as, as the unhappiness of, of a marriage breakdown. 
And this afternoon, we can't get into the entirety of what the, the Bible teaches on the subject of divorce. We'll come to Jesus' teaching shortly, but, but we first need to see what the rabbis, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law were, were doing as they sought to extend out the permissions of, for God's instructions to make it less demanding, to make it easier for them to keep, more convenient for them. And to help us do that, we know that there were two schools of thought at the time that Jesus was speaking about the whole issue of divorce. Two different rabbinic schools of thought. Rabbi Shammai took a very strict line. For him, the only ground for divorce was a serious matrimonial offence. Rabbi Hillel was much more lax in his approach. And Jewish historians actually tell us that, that his was the more widespread um, common view. And his lax view basically meant that a man could divorce for any cause whatever. Um, he could just re- request a, a certificate and bam, he could do it. So if he didn't like his wife's cooking or he took a fancy to someone else, he could get a certificate of divorce and boom, done. The Pharisees liked that lax approach. And uh, later on in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 19, they try to catch Jesus out by asking him a question. So up on the screen, I'm going to put, um, here we are, Matthew 19, verses 3 to 9. Some Pharisees came to test him, Jesus. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So do you see that this kind of debate about marriage, this divorce, that's what, that's what they're getting at. And they're wanting to try and trap Jesus and see where he stands on this, this issue. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, What God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man may give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now John Stott writing on... On, uh, on these verses, points out three significant contrasts between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, first of all, were preoccupied with the grounds for divorce, looking into the kind of legal technicalities and the loopholes. Jesus was preoccupied with the institution of marriage. Quite a contrast between their two approaches. Secondly, the Pharisees called Moses' provision for divorce a command. But Jesus called it a concession. A concession because of the hardness of of human hearts and their sinfulness. And thirdly, to, to sum up, the Pharisees regarded divorce lightly. Jesus took it seriously. And that helps us with with Matthew 5, doesn't it? Rather than a what's the most we can get away with kind of approach to divorce, Jesus' priority 
is the sanctity and importance of, of marriage as set out right from the very beginning in the book of, of, of Genesis. And for Jesus, divorce is only permitted for sexual immorality. Um, again, we've not got time to get into that more than we've done just now. But um, if you'd like to, to talk more about that, then do come and grab me afterwards or drop me an email. I'd be, be really happy to, to, to talk to you a bit more about that. But we're moving on to oaths. Oaths. And uh, this might be this seem a bit kind of far removed from us initially. Uh, verse 33. Again, you've heard it said, it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill the Lord uh, to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make... Um, uh, one hair, white or black. What the Pharisees had been doing was is developing a sophisticated formula for making vows. And in particular, about what made the vow binding or not. What made it in a, that they had to keep it. Um, if the divine name, if, if the name of the Lord was included in the vow, it was binding. They had to fulfil it. So if you made a vow which doesn't have the Lord's name in it, well, then technically you could sort of wiggle out of it. You could find a loophole and, and uh, you could get away with not keeping your vow, your commitment that you've made. That's what was most important to these Pharisees as they approached this law. What are the sort of technical loopholes and how can we sort of get out of keeping our vows and commitments if we wanted to and all, all of that kind of stuff. Jesus cuts through all of that. He sees that they're more interested in the kind of formulas and the, all of that kind of stuff and, and, and he says that's not at all what this law is all about. That's not at all what it's pointing to. Verse 37, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. For Jesus, it's profoundly simple and deeply challenging too. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So the question for us is, how honest are we? In, our, in the way we go about our work or at school, um, at work with, with expense claims or when the boss is ringing us to check up on progress on projects. Is our yes, yes in, in those situations? In our friendships, um, do we say what we mean and mean what we say? It's quite a challenging thing to ask. How prone are we to embellishment and over-exaggerating? Just let your yes be yes, Jesus says. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. So finally, the final two, and perhaps the most famous or infamous bits of, of, this, of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Uh, retaliation. What Jesus says here is profoundly countercultural. Verse 38, you have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. 
But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, the Old Testament law that Jesus quotes from was used as as part of the judicial system to set out the maximum penalty under the kind of civil law. But the trouble was the Pharisees took this principle from the law courts and applied it to their personal relationships and so used it as a way to justify taking revenge when they've been wronged. Now, from these verses, you can get into all sorts of really interesting debates about whether Christians should be pacifists, what these verses mean for a government as as a whole. What is Jesus saying here about war? Should we let Putin just get on and do what he wants to do? As as we read, is is that what Jesus is saying here? But I'm not going to wade into any of those um, issues. You'll You'll be glad to know. I'm not going to open those cans of worms. Jesus, I think, has has us as individuals in view here as he talks about retaliation. And what he what 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 he wants to say is, is as Christians, our relationships should be governed by love, not revenge. Justice. And there's something deeply countercultural about what he sets out in these verses here he's calling us to to lay down our rights he's calling us to meekness not weakness meekness deliberately choosing to to lay aside my rights to self-sacrificially love and he sets out these four situations to show the extent that we should go in, in laying aside our rights. So what is it that governs our relationships? Is it love? Revenge? What's the overriding factor as we, as we consider our friendships and our relationships? Well, building on what he's been saying about retaliation... Uh, at the end of chapter 5, for the last section we're looking at, he finally uh, turns to, to, to love for our enemies. Uh, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. And in this instance, the Pharisees messing with the law is particularly blatant. Have a look at verse 43 again. What's missing? What's been added instead into this? it should be love your neighbor as yourself and so they've ditched the as yourself bit and added in hate your enemy so do you see what they're doing they're they're watering down limiting the scope of what loving our neighbor actually means and they're adding in a command to hate uh, your enemy instead but on what Jesus says to them, it's, uh, have a look at verse 46, verse 47. It's, it's clear for them that they thought of, of their neighbour as those who loved them, those who were their, their brothers. Well, it's easy to love those who love you, Jesus says. What credit is there to you if you do that? Who is our neighbour? Well, we, we could turn to Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. 
to get Jesus's incredible definition of of, of what it is, of who our neighbour really is, how he blows it open so wide of, of who our neighbour is, not just someone who looks like us, who's from our country, who's in our tribe, who's, who's our brother, who's, who loves us. No, Jesus pushes back on that understanding. And it's really radical stuff. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's loads, again, that we could draw out. But I want us to notice verse 45. We're to to love that way that we may be children of our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven knows what it means to, to love his enemies. Jesus knows what, it's, what it means to be beaten, to have his tunic torn from him. And to not retaliate. He knows. Colossians 1. uh, 21 to 22. Listen to how Paul. Describes us before. we, we, We were Christians. Once you were alienated from God. Separated from him. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior but now he has reconciled you he has brought you in right relationship with God by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation Jesus didn't just turn the other cheek he gave his life for us his enemies, while we were enemies, he gave his life for us. And he calls us to, to love like this. And verse 48, he, he calls us to be perfect, just as your heavenly father is perfect. This is the, the righteousness that God's looking for from, from those of us who, who've been made right with him. We don't do all these things in order to get right with him, but because we're first right with him, because as with the Beatitudes at the start of this chapter, because we've, we've come to Jesus empty handed, aware of just our sheer neediness, how much we need him, because we've been blessed, because we're in a right relationship with him uh, through coming in those ways in verses 1 to 12, um, this now is how we're to live as, as those, um, those people. The right, this is the righteousness that God's looking for from us. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect in all of these ways. It's not a what's the most I can get away with when it comes to, to God's law. But rather it's a how can I be more like my father in heaven? How can I be more like the Lord Jesus that's our, our attitude towards um, this sermon, to God's, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, God's, God's law. Now I wonder, are you and I, how like the Pharisees are we with our impulse to try and make God's word less demanding, to try and make it a bit less awkward and difficult and um, let's make it a bit more easy to, to manage and we don't want it to challenge us too much. 
How much are we like that? Well, we need God's help to, to change our hearts, to change our attitudes, to change our lives. If we to, to live like this, we, we cannot do it in our own strength. But it's so important to see that um, holiness, this kind of righteous living God's calling us to, it's not so much a movement away from things we need to stop doing as it is a movement towards a person, a movement towards the Lord Jesus. Be like me, Jesus says. So let's pray and and ask him um, to help us fix our eyes on him. So why don't we just take uh, a moment... Have a look down at um, all these areas that we've rattled through. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? Where do you need his help in your life, in your relationships? Let's take a moment to think about that and I'll, and I'll pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you don't treat us as our sins deserve. But instead, though our sins are many, your mercy is more. And that is such good news for us. How we need your help to to live the lives that you've called us to, to live out the identity that you've given us. Father, please um, help us. The things that perhaps you've uh, prompted in our, in our hearts this afternoon as we've looked at your word, please, Lord, help us to, to chew them over, to pray them over, to talk them through. And please, Lord, by your spirit, through your word, through your people, would you help us and change us to be ever more like the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.